Hey guys, Tucker here, co-host of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. Before we get into this week's show, I wanted to let you know that we're currently looking for more projects. So for any of you guys that listen to the show that may be an agent or otherwise that have a property that you're looking to sell, we'd love to hear from you. Obviously, we're looking to purchase properties that are maybe not best suited for the retail market or maybe they need to be redeveloped. So we do renovations and we do new construction so we could buy an existing home that maybe it smells like cigarette smoke, maybe it hasn't been updated in decades, maybe it's got some fun functional issues, some problems like that, or maybe it's just in an area that is best suited to take the house down, partition the lot, maybe build a couple new homes, or just build one new home in its place, and anything in between. So if you guys out there in Listenerland have anything that would be best suited selling to a development company like ours, we'd love to hear from you. You can go to our website, which is ttmdevelopmentcompany.com, and when you go there, there's a contact us tab. Click on that, and you can send us a message, and we'll get back to you shortly thereafter. We'd love to hear from any of you guys out there that have a property like this, and hopefully we we can do a deal together. This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihew from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. All right, everybody out there in listener land, welcome back. This is episode 104 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We're back, and we've got quite the episode for you. There might even be some name games, some word games, some adult beveraging, and of course, my co-host, Mr. Steve Nassar, and our secondary co-host, Mr. Joe. What's happening, guys? Hey, there's a 500-pound gorilla in the room, Tucker, that we need to talk about. And that is that it's Columbus Day. Did you guys know, this is a fun factoid for you. By the way, back to what Tucker said, we are doing a little fun thing here, the three of us who can all see each other. And we're having a little, a little fun today. Every once in a while, Joe is going to hold up a word as one of us is speaking and we have to say that word. Tucker missed his cue on Gorilla, which is kind of lame. And I've nailed two now, including Tucker's. That's okay. So, you can pick uh, up the pieces for me. You're ahead. <laughs> That's kind of what's happening there. But yes, it is Columbus Day, listeners. For us, we'll probably put this out a little bit later in the week. Fun factoid. So is the Columbia River named after Columbus? Yes or no? Who knows the answer to this? Not me. Not I. <laughs> That's all you, Steve. Yeah. It is. And the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., is also named after Columbus. So there's your uh, fun factoid for the day. So I've got a, a prediction. They're going to rename the Columbia River someday. What do you think? I, I, you know, I could see that happening. I feel like this is one of those holidays like where people have one foot in, one foot out, right? Like half the stock market is closed, but the bond market is open. I showed up to my office today and half the cars were in the parking lot. But I mean, you know, it's it's. I think there's mixed, there's definitely mixed emotions about, you know, the, the people that came across the oceans 500 years ago and the things they did and what they took back with them and what they started. Yeah, I could see that happening. So we have Joe on the show. Joe, have you said hi? Besides putting up words that we have to say, have you, have you said anything? I haven't, but I am thankful to be here as always and looking forward to tackling six big 
popular, most comments, most likes, most uh, adversarial and thought-provoking topics. So let's dig in. From our no, best I, of masters. And I just oh, have to yeah. point out, Joe just held up a word for Tucker while he was talking. So yeah, I'm, I'm assuming he was wanting Tucker to interrupt him and say the word. Yeah. <laughs> I will be going to Cabo San Lucas next month, by the way. So. <laughs> nice. Very nice. Okay. And while Joe is periodically holding up words, my my superpower, that's his superpower. He gets to hold up words that we, me and Tucker have to say and weave into our topic. My superpower is I have an iPhone with a timer on it, and at any moment I can I can hold it up and and start counting them down, kind of like a, a debate, presidential debate. So, and that applies to you too, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> you got to do the selfie timer, turn around, right, so you can see it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> okay, let's get into our topics. So the first one, Joe, why don't you start kick it off? This was your actual post. A couple of these are your posts, Joe. Go figure. Oh, well, look oh, at me. Over maybe only one of them. Maybe only one's yours. You. There was another one that I looked at that was yours. Yeah, the first one, the last one. But no, there's this two. One's one. A good one. There's two. There's two. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. I will read it, and it's uh, one of those fun. Would you rather? And uh, the question is, from October seventh, would you rather have one two million dollar listing or four five hundred thousand dollar listings? Knowing that a $2 million listing has one buyer, one inspection, one appraisal, and four listings uh, that equal $2 million being four $500,000 listings, you're quadrupling your workload. What do you prefer? And that was one of those, if you think it, you ask it. And I was curious to see the responses, if people would be safe or if they would be betting on themselves. And uh, what was the overwhelming response, by the way? M most people want the four. Most okay. people want four $500,000 listings because all of the juice that comes with it, you have four times the amount of media, social media, buyers, runoff listings in the, in the area, and they sell quickly. And even though you're talking four appraisals, four inspections, four negotiations. They know that they sell quickly and the spinoff business is, is times four. So the majority of the people went that route and I don't necessarily disagree. Two million bucks today is not necessarily a, a super expensive price. Like when I started a million dollars was a super expensive Price two million today is a, a nice house and a nice commission, but not completely unusual. So my answer was a uh, uh, a little bit sarcastic that I want all of them. I want all the five hundred thousands and the two millions and everything in between. And oh, the timer's up. So <laughs> you got forty nine seconds. Go. Yeah. Okay. I like I like a mix. Something to say, a $2 million listing generates $2 million buyers and sellers. And you don't need too many of those to have an outstanding year. You sell 10 of those and you're happy. So I'm not scared of the $2 million listings. I got the marketing power behind it. And uh, I welcome all of those referrals. But I understand the $500,000 ones fly off the shelf. 
if your marketing's on point and if you price it correctly. That's my thoughts. Very Steve? concise. And he well stayed done. within his time. Good job, Joe. Good job. You, you know, okay, so I was a little surprised by the comments, but I get them because I was that camp before. I, I For years, early in my career, I, I really did buy into the, you know, I don't want to baby the big ones and how, you know, and, 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 and in that exact conversation, because I liked how you set it up, Joe, you, you made it an either or, right? And in that conversation, for, for years, I would have said um, that, you know, a $2 million listing is like a petunia. I mean, it's just rare. It's something that you, you have to really, really, it's fragile. You have to take really good care of it. I'm nailing this word game, by the way. Um, <laughs> I didn't even know. On the, uh, the $500,000 listings, here's a couple other things. You, you, you said it well, Joe, but a, a couple things you didn't say that I want to, I want to say, and they were mentioned in the thread. I do believe the average $500,000 listing is going to hold a higher commission for the listing agent than a $2 million one. It's much more common for a $2 million seller to go, whoa, will you do 5%? Will you do 4.5%? Whatever. They're going, to, they're going to say, hey, just like you said, Joe, this is the same. The, the, you're doing the same amount of work, and so can you take a reduction in your commission? That's much more likely to happen with, with a $2 million listing. With a $500,000 listing, I also think you have a higher likelihood that maybe someone on your team or yourself or a buyer could 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 not only maybe get a buyer for that property, but other buyers elsewhere. Um, and there is just much more activity. There's much more energy. I, I think as agents, most of us are in this business because we like to be busy. We want to be busy. And I think we like that idea of having four listings you know, lots of things going on, open houses, activity occurring. I've got a timer on me now. That said, I have gone a little bit more in the other direction the last couple of years. And I do see the value of having the bigger listings. I see the benefit of the efficiencies. I like that arena. I like, I also think that those bigger listings help you get the $500,000 listings when you show that, that you're very capable of, of something higher. So in my comments in that thread, I put that I would want jokingly two $500,000 listings and one $1 million listing and kind of have a blend of the two. And that's kind of where I am here today. But the overwhelming response, Tucker, was they wanted the four $500,000 listings. Tucker, you just like to sell the $2 million house, right? Or maybe $3 like, million house. I like strategery, as Joe would say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I've been on both sides of this thing. Um, when I first started in this lovely business that we call real estate. We did a lot of lower end homes and a lot more volume. And since then we've dialed back the volume and we've dialed up the price point. And I will say two things. Number one is it's less work for probably more money. Uh, at the end of the day, there's a lot less friction, a lot less, um, just a lot less variables that you have to deal with on my end. So I personally like building the higher end homes better. Uh, but you also have to get there, right? You can't just jump out of bed and go build a high-end home. You have to build a bunch of little crappy houses first. You know, well, not crappy houses, but <laughs> let's say less desirable areas, right? Um, so that you can kind of build up your war chest and just your general knowledge base and not, you know, you can't go build a $2 million house if you haven't done a number of homes kind of leading up to that, right? But the second thing I will say is this, our best buyers are our highest price point buyers. Our worst buyers are generally in the 500,000 range, which are your first time home buyer, 
which I'll say it, it's not going to be popular, but it's often attached to more pain in the ass agents that have pain in the ass clients. And so, you know, that's just what we found when we deal in the higher end, people are a little more refined all the way around in how they conduct themselves, how they do business, how they control their clients' emotions. Um, Their clients' emotions are generally more controlled on their own because they've been through this process a number of times. They're just a little more sophisticated buyer. And so they value what it is that we bring to the table a little more so than somebody just doesn't know any better. So Mm -hmm. I like the higher end. Um, I am aware that it's perceived as having more risk, uh, especially with where we're at in the cycle right now. But that's why we pick, you know, very specific lots and specific areas if we're going to build them out. So I'm on the higher end. That's what I like. Mm-hmm. But you diversify. You also do the the we mid do. range. Yeah. We do. Yeah. I mean, we look at it as like you got to. I got overhead and bills and people to that we support with the company, right? And then we have these kind of beacon, you know, projects that you know help further our brand and they're you know very recognizable and you know, they just do a lot for, you know, not only financially, but also for the brand overall. And so we kind of do both. Um, so I, I, I guess I should say I have, you know, foot on both sides, but, um, I like the higher end better, um, for the reasons stated. I like that word Tucker. And and it wasn't even a word that Joe held up and you had to say it, but you said beacon projects and it reminds, you know, what it reminds me of, it reminds me of the street of dreams, right? Like builders don't do the street. Oh, Joe's writing. Here we go. Builders don't do the street of dreams because that's the house where they're going to make a bunch of money. They do it because they're probably going to lose money or break even at best, but it's a beacon project. It gets their, it gets their many eyeballs on them. And I have to say as a realtor, I've appreciated that about higher end listings. You know, here and now today, I usually, whenever I go pending on a home, whether I'm on the buy side or the list side, I will put it on my Facebook. I've got, you know, 3,500 Facebook friends, most of my past clients, Sphere, everybody. When I put that I'm pending on a $1.8, $2 million home, I get a lot of likes. There's something about it. It gets noticed. And when I put on that I'm pending on a $500,000 home, a lot less likes. So it is something, there is something to it where you use those higher end properties to help build the rest of your business and to to really get eyeballs on your business. I I like that word, beacon project. Okay, let's move on. Before Joe finishes writing, something that I have to say. This one was posted October 8th, Broker Tours. We've probably talked about this one. We could probably do a a lightning round on this one where we we zip through it quickly. Is it beneficial to my sellers? I don't see the point, but maybe I'm missing something. On a new listing with an open house plan for opening weekend, does a broker tour have any real advantage? Let's ask you, Joe, do you do broker tours or do you promote them? I do. Uh, Well, I put them in RMLS, which is all we do these days. And uh, one of my favorite questions when I uh, talk to a broker, before you show a listing, whether it's vacant, whether it's owner-occupied, whether it's agent, a company, 24-hour notice, there's all these different showing restrictions. But at the very least, if you've been doing this a while, you need to sort of understand that you should first check availability to make sure it's still available. One of my favorite questions to listing agents is, what information do you have that is important for me to know that I can't read in the listing? And that could be, hey, the sellers need a 30-day rent back, or, oh, hey, uh, it got all new uh, uh, furnace and AC and the HVAC is completely brand new as well as a roof since since it was sold last. There's a lot of stuff that you need to talk to people and kind of find out 
what the real story is, and the listing doesn't always say it. And you have that opportunity on a broker's open house. So a broker's open house that I host, I go and that allows me to do two things. One, intermingle with the people that are most likely going to sell it. Also, fill them in on all the things that isn't super transparent that you see on all the social media sites and third-party vendors. But uh, to maybe tell them the special things that, hey, these people are moving to Scottsdale and they don't have a place picked out and they really need a 30-day rent back. That's super important to the offer has nothing to do with price, but sometimes terms is just as important. So I do brokers open houses. It also gives me a time to spend time in the house and notice all the special features. So after a broker's open house, I might go into the listing and tweak some stuff. The living room might have a wood-burning fireplace and vaulted ceilings and, and wired for surround and hardwood floors. And when you're taking a listing, it's all encompassing. You're going through the house, you're writing features as fast as you can, but something might kind of pop out. So it's, it's twofold. It's one for me to perfect what I'm marketing and talk to people and find out what their buyer's situation is and tell them a little bit about what my seller's situation is. So there's no time wasted on a broker's open, uh, in my opinion. Okay. Um, I have a couple of follow-up questions for you, Joe. Mm -hmm. um, why not hold that house open at a time where the consumer can come as well and, and be efficient and hit two birds with one stone? In other words, why not invite all those same agents on a Saturday and also invite the public? So as realtors, we have the obligation of trying to find the perfect property for people. We have people that live currently in California, Idaho, Washington, wherever they are in the United States or different countries for that matter. And they and they say, hey, this is what we're looking for. We want a multi-generational house. My mom is moving in with us. We need something kind of on grade, her own separate place. We need this and this and this. And so the, the idea way back when is all of the listings kind of got taken on Saturday and Sunday. And then Tuesday you had your broker's open house. So the brokers can intimately know the house and then their realtor or the, their buyers get off work and they're available Saturday and Sunday. And that person would be able to intelligently speak about the house to these people. Or it's like, well, this won't work. There's too many steps. I'm cutting this thing. But we get paid a lot of money to know what we're talking about. And our buyers kind of give us the flavor of what they're looking for. And it's kind of our job to go out. If they say, hey, here's our top 15, go check them all out. And it's like, we're, we're cutting these because they're on a busy street. I'm cutting this because the layout doesn't work for your needs. I'm cutting this because it doesn't have the lot you, you like. I'm whittling it down to my top five. And that's why I think it's important. Or you would just have 
Saturday, Sunday open houses, and maybe your buyers go look at it without you. So I think there's a value there. It is a little old school with the photos. And I mean, if you really spend the time and have a very detailed listing with lots of attachments, lots of great photos, virtual tour that is epic, that's all terrific, but it doesn't replace seeing it in person. And if you're the eyes and ears for your buyer, you are the person making that judgment when they're working or they're out of state. So I think it is valuable. Um, and hmm. I think that's how it originated. And it has to be worth something because it hasn't changed in 30 years. Another follow-up question for you. <laughs> Should agents always preview homes before the client? No, because a lot of times when you first find a buyer's needs, you send them everything. Here's everything that currently matches your criteria, right? So let's say they have kind of some special needs and maybe there's 50. And from those 50, from what you read online, you could do a little bit of screening and say, okay, this one's been on the market for 160 days. This one's on a busy street. These don't match. I think these are my top 10. And if they don't like any of the top 10, then they've exhausted the market. So then they're only looking at what pops up on the market since that time. If, if nothing on the market works, then it's kind of like, something pops on the market that's like, oh my God, this looks like it could work. Let's go see it. You don't always have the time to preview it first. So you can preview it for the first one to four days on the market with your buyers and make that determination together. Uh, but you don't always, we don't always have that time. Mm, okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, and that's where I'm going here, Joe. I don't, I have no problem with brokers tours. I mean, I, I think the most value I see in them is the socialization and the free food. <laughs> so I see the value in that component. I also see, and, and don't get me wrong, Joe, I'm not disagreeing that if you, that, that me going to a house before my buyer carries weight and could be helpful in me explaining it to the buyer. What, what, where I, the, my only disagreement is just the inefficiency of that pro process. I mean, you know, uh, to, to put it another way, I mean, would it be wonderful if we could always do an inspection on a house before we wrote the offer? Sure. Right. But the, the, the process just doesn't work that way because you'd be so inefficient with your costs and your time and, and a house that you're doing that on could get another offer by somebody else. I, my point being, you know, there was a lot of people that said on that thread, um, you know, well, any any marketing is good marketing. Anybody coming to the house is a good thing. And I get it. It would also be in that same logic if if I took a flyer of a house and just started randomly knocking on doors in Portland and just going, hey, this house is on the market. Hey, this house is on the market. Hey, I'm technically getting more people's eyeballs on the house, but is that the highest and best use of my time and the the most efficient way to market that property. I just, I feel like in this day and age where technology has changed and where you really can, if a pro property is properly marketed, you really can preview it sight unseen. And 
I get what you're saying about out-of-state clients, Joe, because I have plenty of those, but I like to FaceTime them for those showings. And I think there's tremendous value there. Going to the property, setting up a time, you, you have your iPhone or iPad, they've got their their Apple product, you're FaceTiming the house, they're saying, hey, what's over in that corner? Where's that light switch? What's going on? That to me is really valuable. But for me just to walk over to that, drive over to the house and, and in our market, you know, most properties, even on a good day are 20 minutes each way, drive to the property, go inside, walk around, ask some questions and then leave there and old school call the client and describe to them what I saw when chances are they already have seen the property and if they are in my market, we could have been there together at the same time already. I just I just see so many inefficiencies with it. I have no problem with the socialization component. I have no problem with them in general. I just I've been I've done enough of them to have five agents come through and then 20 lenders and 10 title reps. I I don't know that they're they're well bought into. There was one great comment on that post, Joe. Did you see the comment from the gal in Medford and um, Ashland? Do you remember that one? No. There was a, and, and bless her heart for being in the, the master's group. So she said, and, and I thought this, this was probably the easiest way to, and best way to, to articulate this. She said, in Ashland, they're very productive. We have such a small market. When a new house hits the market, us agents here, it's really valuable for us to go see it. Now we know, and we because it's such a small inventory, and and you, everybody knows all the streets, and they kind of know you know different homes. They probably know the names of the sellers, etc. She said, "You go however many miles down the road you go to Medford, and that becomes a much bigger market." And you could be going on a broker tour to tour a home, and before you're leaving there that night, they're getting an offer. And what, and what was the point of that process? And you're never going to know the entire inventory and you're never going to know every house on the market. So it loses a little bit of its value. And I do agree with that. And, and so a caveat to what I'm saying also is I've been, I've seen our agents in Yamhill County. I've seen our agents in Bend. In some of those other markets, they do have higher value in that process because they can kind of wrap their heads around what's out there a little bit better than Portland Metro, where I just think going out and seeing, you know, five, 10 houses in, in an afternoon, there's, there's, there's more productive things you could have been doing, including just sitting at your computer and looking at those houses and, and pinging them to your buyers and going, Hey, what do you think of this one? You want to get out there and see it. And I think you can learn a lot from your client by going to those houses with your clients as well. In other words, you know, I might go to a house and, and have an opinion of it, but a buyer may have a completely different opinion. And I'm being timered out. Tucker, what do you got on this? I, I like Joe's stance because what he's basically saying is you got to know the product you're selling, right? Like at the end of the day, that's really what he's getting at is like, you're, but in real time, like you said, Steve, good house comes on the market. It's priced well. It's probably got an offer within 24 hours. So what the hell does a broker's open really do, right? So you kind of got to get there and and get after it with your buyers. So I don't know. I think it's a little antiquated, but at the same time, I like the logic Joe has, where he's saying, "Look, you're selling a house. You actually should know the product you're selling inside and out." And so it's a good process to learn that. But um, yeah, I don't know. We're in a changing time. The technology's caught up to this this old thing called selling real estate, and you know things are going to change moving forward. And I want to say one last thing, guys. 
I also have a listing hitting the market the following week on Dunthorpe on Greenwood. And I'm doing kind of a hybrid approach, Joe. So check this out. On Sunday, the 27th, I'm actually going to go live like Tuesday or Wednesday, the 22nd or 23rd. And I'm taking it live then because in, with the new coming soon rules, you kind of got to be live for a little while to get some exposure out there to get people to your opens. So I'm taking it live the 22nd, 23rd. I'm marketing on everywhere, including Facebook, Mondo Flyer. I'm going to do a champagne brunch Sunday the 27th from 10.30 to 1.30. Me and several of my team members will be there. Um, I think we're going to bring in like La Provence or something. So we're kind of doing, we're doing this peachy thing where we combine the best of both worlds, right? We're bringing in the public, we're advertising as an open house, but we're also trying to bring in the agents, any agents that want to come preview the house who maybe don't have a buyer for it, but they're curious what this property looks like. This is an awesome estate in Dunthorpe. It's $1.6 million, 1595, which I think should go quick at that price point. We'd love to see as many agents as possible. We'd love to see the public. And um, I just said a word that Joe held up and I bet our listeners don't even know which one it is. Let's move on to the next subject. Craig Olson. I'm listing a house that was a drug house in the early 2000s. It was an ecstasy lab. I mean, it was the early 2000s after all, which can be just as toxic <laughs> as meth. It was cleaned up and received the state of Oregon's clean bill of health. And I did attach the occupancy certificate to the listing. As a buyer's agent, would you, A, like to know this before showing the home, B, like to know this after showing the home, but before submitting an offer. C, not really important as long as it's disclosed and there's paperwork. Tucker, you want to take this one? I don't think it's important. We've renovated so many homes that probably had way worse stuff than people <laughs> making and taking ecstasy in it. We've had yeah, some naughty, naughty stuff, Joe, we've seen um, over the years. Uh, you know... All they do in a house like that is you rip out all the surfaces and drywall anyway and put it back together. So it's like a gut rehab anyway. So we gut rehab just about everything that we do. So it'd be like, this home has had a gut rehab. I mean, to me, it's the same thing. So I don't think it matters. I think you're better off checking out your neighbors and make sure they weren't the buyers of uh, you know that previous product and that they still live there. That's what I have to say about it. Yeah. You know, I was a little, I was a little surprised by this one. On this one, it's early 2000s. That's 19 years ago. Is this the first sale since then? That I was a little confused by that. I didn't quite understand that. I, I'm all for disclosing. If, if this if this warrants being disclosed, and, and I don't know actually technically the rules. Maybe you do, Joe. Like if if a house is a drug house in 2000 and the, and the state of Oregon gives it a clean bill of health and then somebody buys it and they live there a normal life for five years and they sell it, do they have to disclose something? You know, I believe that you should disclose everything. And my opinion on this is, you know, when do you want a deal to blow up? And just lay it all out there. People will call and say, tell me about this drug house and it's certified. And then I can go through and supply documentation and tell them, look, you can't really change history, but you can disclose it. And I think it would be sort of against the ethics if we tried to take it through a professional inspection, a sewer scope, radon, all the other scopes, an appraisal. And then once they're vested for a couple grand saying, oh, by the way, this was a drug house, but it's all certified. I think you lay it all out there because it's going to be uncovered sooner or later. You might as well uncover it at the beginning and 
search for the correct buyer. And mm. if people are freaked out about that, then so be it. That's not the buyer. The public comments, Joe? Uh, no, I, you know, I don't know that there's only 440 characters uh, allowed <laughs> in RMLS, which... I might keep that one out of the public comments. I might Let's keep that one in the agent out of the public yeah. comments. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you only have so much space, so you're going to talk about the house and the location, all the special features and all the amenities, and the, hey, the neighbor's an asshole, or they have barking dogs, or, by the way, the roof is currently leaking. That's kind of second level, but I think that second level has to be put out there immediately. Maybe you upload it as a, uh, a PDF for that broker to download and look at. The and at, at, at first... Uh, at first glance, they have the opportunity to read disclosures, read uh, all the facts on the house of when things were changed, uh, the amenity list, all the reasons why the seller loves it, and some of the things that the new buyer should be aware of. If that broker doesn't go look at those and download them, uh, it's something I'd bring to their attention sooner rather than later. Because there isn't a commission big enough to have something come back at you within the six full years of the statutes. So I think you get it out there. Um, I mean, there's another uh, topic that we're talking about today, which talks about buyers are like as is, where is, and when do you say that, and do you say that. I think that's probably second level. That's not going to be on your flyer. That's not going to be on your your first run uh, advertisement. And I'm not trying to be like an unethical walrus here, but what I really want is truth in advertising. It just, it has to be. And if you hold that out until the buyer is more vested financially, it's going to bite you. Don't you think? Like, I, I like it, Joe. I like it. And I'm all for disclosing. And one thing I would I would always also agree with is you don't even if you get that offer, you don't want to click pending until you go, now you did see this, right? And you've gone over this with with your client. Cause you don't want that sale fail in your history if if at all possible, needlessly. I think timing is a is a great question on this one. You definitely don't want to lead with it and you don't want to harm a property. You don't want to black eye a property. I mean, again, it's 19 years ago. I'm sure a lot has happened since then. It has a clean bill of health, but but you also don't want to be too late in the game. So so that proper timing is key, and um, I liked your approach there, Joe. Let's move on. Emily, Zillow. Has you love Zillow, but so I'll read it for you, <laughs> and then I'll let you comment on. You and Zillow much. broke up. Yeah, well, you know, I'm but sure you still have some feelings. We're, we're like that. We're like that couple that's that's got divorced and then remarried again. Okay, so Emily said, uh, quick question, Zillow incorrectly has AC listed as one of the features on a house that I have listed. My RMLS listing is correct, of course, and the house doesn't have AC. Now a buyer with an accepted offer is wavering on the purchase because she thought it did have AC. Can a buyer back out prior to inspections for something like that? 
I did go through and fix three of her listings, I guess, that had incorrect info regarding AC because of Zillow. Uh, and then one house that actually did have Zillow or did have AC, uh, Zillow said it didn't. So obviously she's frustrated because uh, she's apparently, <laughs> Zillow's a little shaggy on their data, it sounds like. So <laughs> anyway, what do you think, Steve? You broke up. I, I I was under the impression Zillow was aggregating data directly from the MLS, so how could they possibly get that wrong? But maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, well, one thing I'll point out, Emily Hetrick, she does a lot with Zillow. I've actually gone to several Zillow events. Um, in I went to one in California, and I went to one in um, Texas, in San Antonio, and Emily was at both. Um, and that's those are the times I've spent the most time with her, getting to know her. She's a great gal. So what I want to do to keep our listeners abreast of how this topic works it does pull from the MLS, but it's not a perfect process. Remember, Zillow pulls from every MLS, and they're all different, right? So they all have different filters. So one might call, like, one, one thing, I guess this is unique in our market, and Tucker, you know houses better than Joe and I, but are we unique in the Northwest in that we have heat pumps? Is that unique to our area? Mm, not so much. I mean, there's other areas that, like we have a crawl space foundation where other places are built on slab, right? So it's I guess just, what do they have certain boxes? But AC seems like a pretty normal box to check, right? So like how just could technically that second one, base? Yeah, yeah, sort of like second base, right? How so? How does AC get screwed up? I don't, I don't know. That seems odd to me. <laughs> but you tell me. You're the Zillow expert. So, anyways, my and th that's my point. So in one in one MLS, like say in Florida, they might call it air conditioning, right? Another one might call it AC. One might call it a heat pump. So Zillow is trying to communicate with all those and fill in the one field with all these different things that different MLSs are, are, are trying to say. So that's their challenge on their end. Um, not to defend my ex-wife, Zillow there. Um, <laughs> but so in that process, they their data does get messed up. Here was the big takeaway on this subject. What I kept reading through the threads, and I and I found very, very beneficial to understanding this dilemma, what I kept seeing in the posts was we as agents are required to properly control our marketing, how we load RMLS. So when we are listing a property, Joe, I, I'm sure you do this. You're a uh, you're a very diligent agent. When you're working with a buyer. You make an offer on a house, it's accepted. You probably require this of all your agents as well. How does your buyer know it's in the listing? It's part of the listing. It would be the client full, right? Well, we, we tour it and we look at RMLS and there we, you can go. RMLS. Yes. we can only be responsible for first party information. There you go. And if the listing agent <clears throat> has it in RMLS, that's the guideline. If it says it has air conditioning and it doesn't, that person might be buying the buyer air conditioning. If the listing says it does not have air conditioning, but Zillow, Trulia, Realtor.com, Redfin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, says it has air conditioning, all bets are off. Because there's a lot of third-party companies out there and they extract information from everywhere, not only RMLS, but other times it sold, maybe the house had air conditioning, the thing went tits up, and the guy got rid of it instead of replacing it. And now it does not have air conditioning. And if we go to the house yeah. that does not have air conditioning, 
And we know that, but it says it's somewhere online. I, I can't worry about all that stuff. All I could worry about is me and my buyers. So uh, I make sure that the offer that I write encompasses everything that the house currently has independent of what third, there's no way I could verify what all third party sites say on any one given house. I can only be responsible for seeing it, taking notes, educating the buyers, and then writing a well-crafted agreement. And if a house does not have it and it's not advertised with it, but they see it somewhere else, you know, there's that little thing at the bottom that says information here and the schools, you know, buyer beware, verify it yourself. We can't be responsible for anything else other than our firsthand information, which is the most up to date. Which so is, and that is RMLS. That is RMLS. So that is RMLS. Yep. Kind of back to my point, Joe, a best practice, I believe in this case to keep to keep buyers out of this situation. And this was Emily's listing. So I'm not talking to her. I'm talking about the buyer's agent. A best practice is I show a house, buyer wants to write an offer. We write the offer. It's accepted somewhere in that process, either during that process or immediately following it, have them put their signature on the client full, upload the client full, docu-sign it to them and have them stamp and, and say, I am seeing what is coming with this house, all the blubber, all the fat that's attached to this property is coming with it, and I approve. And in in that process, you as the buyer's agent, if they later go, hey, I saw on Zillow that there was air conditioning, you could say, look, we don't own Zillow. We don't control Zillow. We do have accountability with the, the MLS. You initialed the MLS. It, it said right there where air conditioning, it said, no, it does not have it. I would that's bet the best that practice for everybody. The vast majority of clients probably get that DocuSign. They're like, what the hell is this? And they go down and they hit the button, they DocuSign okay. it, and then they come and complain later. So, I, think that I think that's a good practice. So much of what we do, though. <laughs> I mean, I, I think you're right, Tucker, but that's so much of what we do is you're putting right. I mean, you know, the, what about the disclosures? We just had a long conversation about disclosures and how to disclose everything. And, you know, there's so much in there that they don't read as well. But at the end of the day, I mean, they're buying a large pr property. They're spending a lot of money. So it it is on I them. I think that's best practices. Definitely. Yeah. If I was in your position, I'd have the client phone. I'd say, here, sign this. That way, at least they know, in theory, what it is exactly they're buying. So Yeah. Us as listing on. agents have no obligation. As you said, Joe, I agree 1,000% to go to every third-party site out there and verify that the information is correct because I can honestly tell you if it's not correct, our ability to change that is very minimal as well. So, okay, let's move on to the next one. Um, the next one is about disclosing BAC and the MLS. So in Washington in Northwest MLS, there's been a lot of fanfare about some changes made where they now are putting in the consumer facing areas what the BAC is that the buyer's agent is receiving as commission for selling that house. Now, I read this article. Did you read this article, Joe? Do you remember it? The buying a home in Seattle may get thousands of dollars cheaper after the rule change by agents this week. Well, yeah, I I read, I scanned it, and I don't know that that's the truth, but yeah. it doesn't mean people won't uh, get Can I agitated. Say that 
I think it's much to do about nothing. I don't think yeah. anybody's going to care, to be honest with you. I think there'll be a couple people that are like, oh, my God, you guys get paid too much money. And then, you know, the teeny tiny commissions you do make, right? You'll be like, hey, I work for that, you know? So I don't think it means anything. But what's your take, Steve? No, I agree. I agree. I just don't see the huge – I think it's change. It's different. And I think agents are running around saying the sky's falling. They – they're lumping this in with a lot of the other technology and the iBuyer. My gosh, I'm so tired of hearing about the iBuyers and the open doors and the Zillows. Yeah, can and I just say, we needed a post on here. Quit posting that damn shit on Masters. It's like not every house is a fit and they spend way too much damn money on their marketing and they market people they shouldn't market to. Take it, throw in the trash. Quit trying to think if they want to buy everybody's house. They just are terrible marketers right now and they got way too much money to spend. I hate it when people post that. And they're like, I sold this house for $200,000 more. It's like, well, you should have. It was a retail house. It wasn't meant for you. They don't know how to market yet. They'll figure it out if they stay in business. The end. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I agree. I, I had to comb through, as we were coming up with topics for today, I combed through about 10 different posts about iBuyers. And I was like, I can't talk about that anymore. I yeah. just did for you. So there we go. There you yep. Go. You turned a little red when you were saying that, Tucker. I know. I'm so I see it so many. In my feed is just like littered with, yeah, are like taking massive offense to it. It's like they don't. You're not the right fit for them. They just spend too much money on marketing. So, I will say in general, agents need to just take it down a notch. Our careers are not. Our jobs are not going the way of the dodo bird. I can assure you. Or the mullet. Yeah. Or the mullet. Or <laughs> the mullet. I can assure you, every industry out there. I mean, for crying out loud, truck drivers are 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 concerned that in the coming decades there's going to be self-driving trucks. I mean, if if this if if technology is affecting truck drivers, we as real estate agents should be sitting really really pretty, right? I mean, that's there's there is so much that happens in a transaction that we are a party to. There's so many technicalities. There's so much money. Our jobs are not going away. We just need to stop freaking out every time there's a change. This is one of those changes. The MLS, probably in response to that lawsuit that's claiming that we're that um, that the real estate agencies or the, the National Association of Realtors is forcing every seller to pay buyer's agent commission, they're choosing, this NMLS is choosing to disclose that upfront to the consumer. I don't see, I look at it from both sides. You've got from a seller side, <clears throat> my experience with sellers is, most of them want to incentivize a buyer's agent to sell their house. So when I'm when I'm competing on a listing and a seller's trying to get me down on commission, I think it's beneficial for them to know exactly what that other guy that is competing against me is is offering. And I think it's it's good for them to realize there are people out there who 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 might do things at a discount but they're also passing that discount on to the buyer's agent which is hurting that listing. Um, so I, I see it that way from the listing side. On the buyer's agent side, I mean, I don't see the downside to some, a buyer you're working with as they're looking at home, seeing that, hey, they're going to pay you. That's great. I like you. You're doing a good job. You should get paid. I, I just don't see a big issue there. And if they do Joe? have an issue with it, you probably don't want them as a client. Yeah. Yeah. Joe, what's your take? Well, so none of that changes the price of the house. The broker can be doing it pro bono, or they could be getting a big fat BAC. It doesn't change the, the price of the house. So market value is market value. If you give a good offering 
and you generate all kinds of excitement and activity, then whether that guy's doing a, it for free, a reduced commission, a full commission, a full commission with a bonus, it doesn't change market value. It's, it's sort of looking at how much a seller makes on the sale of a home, right? That is irrelevant absolutely and completely to uh, the value of the home. I mean, there's someone that bought a house for more money during the depression and they're selling it for less now. And there's people that inherit houses and they get a free house. How much people stand to make has nothing to do with market value. Market value is the highest obtainable price in a reasonable amount of time without a major pain in the ass to everybody involved. And you look at that property, you market it to the world. I don't know why it's relevant that they post a BAC out there because it really doesn't, it's not relevant to the buyers. They're judging the house on its own merit and what they're asking. They're comparatively shopping. They're looking at 10 other houses that are similar and, uh, I think it's dumb, but there's a lot of chicken littles out there that with, hey, they're posting the BAC, they now know how much we make, or we have iBuyers in our market, or all the things, it really isn't relevant to what we do on a daily basis. So I don't really give this a consideration. Um, I'm glad it was posted as a topic. There was a lot of awesome comments, but... If they bring that to Oregon and uh, it's a thing, it really won't change the price of the house. Don't you think, Tuck? I think so. Did we lose our cohort? No, there he is. Okay. He's, he's got him and his chicken legs. I'm having technical the bathroom, difficulties. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think it, yeah, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I think you put it well, Joe. Uh, the price of the house is the price of the house, right? If a broker makes a big fat commission or they make a little one, the buyers of the world are going to pay the same price. So what in the world does it matter other than just knowing which percentage of that pie goes to the broker versus the seller? It still goes to somebody. So that's my take. Yep. Yep. Steve, cool. Are you good? You're good. Let's move yep, on. I'm right. good. We got a we got a good one here. That okay. uh, I've never seen this. This one's yours, Tucker. We want Yeah, so this one's interesting. Uh Adair Homes is suing one of their buyers for a negative online review. Um thoughts? Anyone work with them? I never have. Uh by Betty Jung. 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 You know how to say her last name? Probably bot- no. butchered it. But anyway, Betty, good uh, good to see you. Uh, if it's Spanish, it would be hung. Yes. <laughs> J-U-N-G. Jung. Yeah. I guess Jung. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so this seems crazy to me that they could actually sue uh, somebody for a bad review. I guess that, I mean, can restaurants sue people that get on Yelp and give them a bad review because somebody was... 30 seconds late to give them water at the table. I don't know. This is, I read a little bit in the article and there is, um, there, there are cases that have occurred in the state of Oregon where there has been lawsuits over, um, reviews. There has to be, they have to be able to prove it false. 
and there has to be, you know, there's some, there's some levels to it, but it has happened. Yeah. Yeah. So we've had, I will say this, if somebody puts like just complete BS out there about the way that you've done something or whatnot, it irritates the hell out of you. So maybe I'm not saying this happened, but it's possible that whoever put that review up there might've embellished a tremendous amount or twisted the truth, which is why they went down the route of suing them. Because we did have somebody once who said that we didn't do this and we didn't do that. And we said we were going to do it, all of which was false. And so it, I think it was on, I don't know, it's on one of these platform sites. And we actually responded. We didn't sue him. We just responded nicely and said, actually, we did do all those things. I don't know why you don't remember that. But we followed through with all of our obligations. But that was really irritating to have somebody do that. Um, we also had somebody post and slander one of our projects that we spent a ton of time doing because they had vinyl windows and they thought that they should have been wood windows. Uh, so they said it was just a cheap, shitty remodel and blah, 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 blah. Um, so, you know, I've been on both sides of it. I understand, you know, the the feelings of you want to reach through the computer and strangle somebody. But to take it to the level of suing them, that does seem like you got a little bit of extra time and money laying around to just go kind of waste. Um, so I don't know. It seems a little crazy to me, but at the same time, you are buying a track builder home. So, you know, they bang those things out and they're probably, you know, they're new, but, you know, they, they bang them out, right? So kind of is what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let me speak to this a little bit because I actually, Randy Sebastian also posted this on his his Facebook feed and I actually... <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't he have a Mexican hairless dog? Maybe not. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Aren't those called chihuahuas? Yes, I believe so. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, um, <laughs> so uh, I've never actually worked with Adair Homes, but I have heard of them. Um, they are well known. I guess if you buy a rural property and you want to put a cheap house on it, that's kind of what you do. That's where I've heard their names come up. Um, I've never heard, you know, them. I've never, I don't think they have the reputation of being the highest quality builder. Um, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I think they're an affordable builder. Um, and oftentimes for rural properties, um, the story on this Tucker was a little unique. Um, as I was reading about this, so apparently this guy, and I want to say he was Pendleton or somewhere back East in Oregon. He had them build a house. He had a horrible experience. I can't speak to what the, the specifics were. He went and started a Facebook page of some sort. Um, basically called, you know, Adair Homes, you know, sucks donkey balls or something like that. <laughs> some, okay. some okay. type of Facebook page. And then he starts gathering other people who've had a bad experience. And apparently what was happening was they would post all this negative stuff. And whenever Adair would go on there and try to, um, to refute it, they would erase their, their posts. Um, so Finally, Adair chose to sue him. Now, here's the part that's ironic to me. Like, I had heard nothing of this until I read about the lawsuit. So my my um, my summation of this is you probably did more damage to your reputation by suing these people and bringing to light what was going on with this person and making a bunch of people go look for that Facebook page then you probably would have done had you just let this guy fester in his hatred of you, be it right or wrong or otherwise, um, in in his process. Um, I agree. So I, think, of, I think they should have let the, you know, just let the hashtag a dare 
sucks donkey balls just run its course <laughs> just <laughs> let it fade out into the the world of you know the online world of nothingness I, I yeah i think you're right they made this they put this in the spotlight by bringing litigation towards it you can't really stop people from having an opinion online there's a lot of keyboard cowboys out there that say all kinds of crazy stuff right so just you just have to kind of let it go and I, I don't know that this was the right thing to do but they did it so yeah you got anything on that one joe you know, anybody can sue anybody else for anything. And uh, there's there's a, a lot of slander and a lot of things going on on the Internet that isn't exactly top shelf. And that person needs to think about, I'm responsible for what I post and where I post it. And if I piss off enough people... I'm going to have litigation come down on me. And it doesn't matter if you're innocent, guilty, gray area. If someone wants to sue you, you have to. It's like blackmail. You have to pay for a defense. So it is a real thing. And, you know, the guy that was mad at he bought his Adair home and the siding fell off and he didn't like all the things and the people weren't nice. And he's going after Adair Holmes, not to mention an 800-pound gorilla that this little guy who's pissed off is going after a big corporation who's going to lose every single time. We face this in Masters, right? Masters is an outstanding group, and we have zero tolerance for people that break antitrust laws or break any of the rules regarding you know, marketing and advertising, bashing a company or an individual. Uh, so it is a real thing. And I would be very, very careful on what, well, I personally am very careful about what I post. And a group I moderate, I'm very careful about the posts that are there. Obviously, we have about 6,000 people and you know, I, I can't be the babysitter 24-7, but if anything is bad and brought to my attention, if it's outside of the rules and regs of either the code of ethics or real estate law or just basically the rules for the group, then they're out and they're out for good permanently. And the problem is solved at that point. So anyone trying to go after this big corporation and try and drag their name through the mud, it's going to be a bad day for that guy. So I know the guy was pissed off. I think he went about it the wrong way. And depending on how much he pissed off Adair Homes, it could be a hundred, $200,000 mistake. Um, so I kind of keep that close to my chest. I let the people know that need to know it, but that's about it. I mean, that's a big boo-boo. And I mean, we're talking thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours and nobody needs that in their life. So everything I post is 50,000 feet. I don't want to piss anyone off. I don't want to hear their opinions or ideas. I just want to lay it kind of out there for the purpose of ethics, knowledge, education, getting a little bit smarter, getting a little better. We're all in the same gene pool. And if we're all going to have deals with each other, 
if everyone's better, it makes it kind of easier for all of us. So uh, I've had my fair share of bad experiences, and I'm not going to be the town crier shouting from a mountaintop trying to drag them through the mud because I don't have the time, money, or desire to do that. So in my opinion, the guy's an idiot. He could have 100% relevant uh, reasons for being mad at Adair, but he went up, he went about it the wrong way. That's I my think, thought. I think you should have read the book, re, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He probably would have got a lot farther with that one, other than yeah, uh, hashtag donkey balls or whatever yeah. he put up. So anyway. Right. Hey, Joe, side, sidebar, sidebar. So there's, I'm looking, Masters is up to 5,300 members. Wow. Does that mean you're no longer able to friend everybody? Because you can I, only have 5,000 friends, right? Yeah, I can't friend everybody, and that's been difficult because part of the approval process is if someone has a very private account and if you're not friends, you don't know that they're a realtor or in the real estate-related business. Mm -hmm. So it gets a little bit more difficult. Now, when they go to join the group, there's questions that are mandatory to answer. If they don't answer it, they don't get in. So oh, gotcha. sometimes if someone recommends a person, that person might not necessarily know there are questions. If they're a little bit more open with their profile, I can see that they're a realtor or a lender or an attorney or a title person, and they will get approved if we have a little bit of verification. But it's a little bit more difficult because everything was completely transparent. Now it's not. And so now the responsibility is the person that wants to join. And hey, look, we get 10 a day of people who aren't brokers that they say they're a broker and they post like a broker license number that's bogus because we do verify those. And, you know, lurkers really don't hurt much, but the first time they post something stupid, they're out. So mm -hmm. I think our, our filter is, is pretty good but uh it was a lot easier when you friend people yep okay all Boys, right we're gonna go to the lightning round i okay. think we do yeah let's we let's We've do got, one more here we got we're running do, long we're gonna lose yeah. people here so let's do this last one and we'll lightning round it okay so uh we're gonna do lightning round each of us have two minutes to talk we'll do um well joe let's do your team one tee it up okay so uh, I posted something September 23rd. When is your team, not my team? Uh, occasionally at the beginning of a transaction, we get asked to send all emails and texts to the lead agent, their assistants, their TC, their buyer's broker, their Skyslope transaction email address, and whoever else is on their team. Basically tag everybody on that side of the transaction. The question is, when is someone else's team not your team? What really is your responsibility? Do you, do, do you try and comply with this wish? Uh, if they want this, should they have a team email address? Um, is it your job to make a distribution list for that team? Uh, do you only reply all? If you get an email from a bunch of people, do you reply all and that's it? If you generate something, do you only send it to the team lead? Basically, you get the idea. Um, look, 
we always try and accommodate. They have a TC, they have the head broker, they have everything else. Uh, I like to get my information to that side. That's my responsibility. Whether it's the broker bringing the offer or their assistants or TCs or buyer brokers or whatever else, I always give it a strong effort. Sometimes I respond by text or in my car or you know, an email that I send when I'm out in the world. And I don't necessarily have all of those people saved as contacts. So I really do make an effort. But I think the underlying thing is when I have a response, my first and foremost responsibility is get it to that team lead. And from a liability standpoint, that person that writes the offer is the only person I am 100% assured has the same confidentiality rules as I do. When they start bringing in lenders and, and all these other people that I don't know who the heck they are, I, I think there's a breach of liability that I don't necessarily know who has the same confidentiality. So as you go through the transaction, you realize kind of who the players are, but if I'm out in the world and all else fails, I just get it to the team lead. If they have their system set up, they either have a distribution list so everybody on their team sees their emails um, or it's their responsibility to forward it on. Uh, the effort is made to try and do that, but it is rarely 100% from me. Yeah. Um, let me speak to this a little bit here, guys. Um, have, as, as a team leader who does have a team, and I encounter this on both sides. So a couple things. Um, I mean, first of all, um, <clears throat> hey, your timer just went off. You did good, Joe. You stayed within your time. Um, Thank you. When we go into escrow on a buy side transaction, we do introduce to the other agent, our, our transaction coordinator, and we do ask them to be copied on everything. But we also don't get upset if they <laughs> if they don't. I'm not saying that word, Joe. That is an inappropriate word. Um, <laughs> write something else in purple that I can say. And then, um, but we don't get upset if they do. And I saw that that was commonly said here. And I I, I applaud the agents. I felt like there was a little team hating going on in some of these posts and uh, some of these comments. Um, and I just, I, and I get that there are different teams are run different ways. One thing I can tell everybody here on this podcast is if you send an email to me, it is going to get air traffic controlled because four different team members have access to my email and whether, wherever I am there, somebody is seeing that email and they're going to route it and make sure if, if somebody wasn't properly copied, they're going to make sure all the right parties are copied. So we do take care of our systems on the backside of this process. Um, and so we, we like to ask that favor. Hey, if you can try to remember to, to, to um, copy our transaction coordinator, but if they don't, we're going to be fine. We're not going to keep asking them and we're going to move on. I think, so there's some basic systems an agent can do when upfront, you know, having, having some tools and some spreadsheets or whatever you do, a Google spreadsheet is a very basic Google spreadsheet for all your open escrows is a very simple way to have uh, in front of you at all times on a second monitor, you know, all the different emails that you need to copy, all the different parties involved. Um, but uh, I just think, I think we all, I, I liked a couple comments in here where they're like, let's try to 
let's try to get along with people. And even if you don't like Elvis's hairdo on the other side of the transaction, be nice to him. Be nice. Be a team player. Be do everything to the benefit of all parties involved. I nailed that one, Joe. Um, Thank you. And uh, and and if and, if, and at the end of the day, look, if if another agent doesn't want to accommodate, I we as teams shouldn't get mad at them. I get it. But let's not hate on teams as a as a lump sum. And and teams shouldn't hate on single agents that maybe go out of town at times and and aren't able to fully um, you know, stay current on everything they have going on. I think we there's different ways to run a business, and I think we need to be respectful of that. But I I definitely thought they were kind of piling on the the dog pile of hating on teams and and some of the intricacies. And I will I will admit there are many teams out there, and I'm sure not they're on they're not all well well run and they may have inefficiencies and they're not communicating and the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. So I'm not defending that. I think if you have a team, you should, it's your job as a team leader to make sure your communication, your backend systems, things are running smoothly so that the agent you're working with and the clients you're working with feel like they have a seamless and, and, and help, you know, productive experience. Well, look at that. 121. Whew. That's a long one. I got something to say on this top before we wrap it up. In the okay. words of, in the words of Rashid Wallace, both teams played hard. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care about this topic <laughs> one bit. But you guys did a great job explaining it. So there we go. We have uh, team <laughs> guys with teams, guys without teams. I think we had uh, a robust show today. We've got a few more topics, but honestly, we had enough fun with what we had. I think the name game went well, or the uh, word game went pretty well. I think, Steve, you probably won. I think you ed- edged me out there slightly. <laughs> Joe, I got to ask, though, did you have like a – like some sort of a, a random word generator program up on your computer, or was that all stuff you were uh, thinking of on your own there? A uh, little of both. Okay. All right. I was going to say, you were being pretty good. You did pretty, good, pretty, Joe. Pretty, you did uh, good. Joe, I, I have to, I'm going to applaud you again. Your Facebook feed is is the, the, the sunshine in my day. Like every time I wake up and I'm looking through my Facebook feed and I see Joe's joke of the day, I'm all, and I know you have secret sites that you get those off of, and I know you're probably not going to divulge them. But man, you you're just a a a, a never-ending fountain of wit and wisdom and humor. So well, it's all it's all positive or all funny, one or the other. Uh, but uh, it's positively there's enough, funny. There's a there's a lot of time in the day, and and none of it should be encompassed by negative haters and trolls out there, and if someone can come to my site and get a chuckle, share it on their wall or or uh, make a funny comment, I mean, that's a win, I think. Absolutely. I, love, I like your outlook on social media, Joe. Yeah. You're you're the social media king, by the way. Uh, thank you. <laughs> you're very good at it. For an important real estate podcast. There you go. All right. Well, I think we had a great episode, some great topics, and um, I think uh, I like this new game that we're playing. So we'll have to do it again here soon. Uh, once we reload with topics here, have to give the, the group some time to kind of marinate a little bit to do that. But uh, Joe, as always, thanks for joining us. It's always fun. It fun. Always fun. We're out of here. We'll see you guys on the next one. Peace. Thanks again for listening to our show and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.